The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, we start with the big news this morning that the Football Super League has imploded within 48 hours, effectively, of being announced, it seems. The six English clubs that signed up, Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham Hotspurs and Liverpool, well, they fell like dominoes after the backlash from fans, politicians and players. Well, Reuters has reported that Juventus chairman Andrea Agnelli says the breakaway tournament can no longer go ahead. Here, the culture secretary Oliver Dowden called the collapse a victory for fans. So how did the Super League fail so spectacularly? Well, we spoke yesterday to Greg Dyke, former chairman of the Football Association, and even then he said the idea was destined to fail. Well, I think the reaction over the last couple of days has been so strong against it. I don't think they expected anything like the reaction they've had, certainly in the UK. But I have yet to meet or hear or find anybody who supports it. So that was Greg Dyke. Well, the organisers of the Super League now say that they plan to, quote, reshape the project. But the spectacular own goal has some calling for more regulation of the beautiful game and who gets to own the teams. We're going to discuss uh, a bit later on the programme a bit more about the Super League with Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael. But today we're going to move our focus on to Northern Ireland. About 10 days the province will be marking its centenary. That comes amid violent clashes in loyalist areas recently following frustration over the customs border in the Irish Sea and feelings that the province is slowly breaking away from the UK. Well, according to a new poll commissioned by the BBC, a majority of people on both sides of the Irish border now believe Northern Ireland will have left the UK within 25 years. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Declan Kearney, who's National Chairperson for Sinn Féin, a member of the Assembly and also a junior Minister. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Declan. Welcome to the programme. Uh, another poll, in fact, caught my eye this morning, reported by RTE in Dublin, suggesting a majority of people in the Republic don't expect a United Ireland anytime soon. So where do you think the argument on all this is now? I think what all of this reflects is the extent to which a very dynamic conversation is taking place across the island of Ireland about the inevitability of constitutional change. And as a result, uh, the responsibility on political leaders and on both the British and Irish governments now is to uh, ensure that we put in place a process which allows for an orderly transition from the current status quo towards Irish reunification. And the provision exists within the Good Friday Agreement for the triggering of a unity referendum. Concurrent referenda, north and south, Sinn Féin is arguing that we have now arrived at the point when we should be setting a date for the unity referenda 
north and south, and on the basis of winning the unity referenda, uh, giving people the opportunity to have their say, and we believe increasingly numbers of citizens north and south are recognising that their future is best served in a constitutional, a new constitutional setup on the island of Ireland, that we begin the transition, an orderly transition, mm. Uh, from the current status quo, an end to partition, and the establishment of a new constitutional national democracy on the island of Ireland. But on the basis of the polling that Roger just mentioned, you could lose on this evidence, at least. Well, I think we have to come at the uh, issue of polls in a very sensible way. They represent uh, moments in time. Uh, What is unquestionable is that the effect of Brexit has changed the political landscape in Ireland. There is now a discussion taking place that in my lifetime is unprecedented about how we can in fact shape a new constitutional future for all of our people. And therefore, what we need to do, I believe, is learn the lessons of how not to conduct referenda and uh, the failure of the uh, uh, Brexit referendum in Britain is a case in point uh, where there was a, a catastrophic approach taken towards uh, managing the debate. Sinn Féin's arguing for a very informed, inclusive national conversation about how, in fact, we can introduce constitutional change on our island, recognising that uh, in the first instance we need to have an informed discussion. We then need to have the referenda. And then we need to work out the the modalities uh, that are required to allow for the transition which I speak about. But Declan, I mean, you only had to look at what was going on in the streets of Belfast uh, just a week or two back. Uh, You see the passion, the anger that was clearly there. Uh, The DUP has been channeling this to some extent. You've accused them of reckless behaviour and political vandalism against the Good Friday Agreement. But they are channeling a mood that's clearly there in the loyalist community who don't want what you're talking about and feel very, very threatened. You can't easily reconcile them, can you? I disagree with your premise. I, I, I do believe that the DUP and other sections of political unionism have been involved in a very serious form of zero-sum politics. It, it's dead-end politics, you might say. And uh, they have whipped up an hysteria within some sections of uh, the unionist section of our community, but I don't believe for a moment that that is representative of wider unionist opinion. The fact is that uh, Brexit has now prompted many people to uh, review the current political circumstances that we find ourselves living in. They, uh, they recognise that Brexit has changed everything. The, 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 the poll which uh, was broadcast last night uh, actually indicated that uh, a majority of people in the north of Ireland under the ages of 45 actually envisage their future in the United Ireland, 50% of under 45-year-olds. Uh, would prefer to see Irish reunification than not. So I think we have a a picture of many moving parts at this particular point in time. But Mm. what has happened in the streets of Belfast over the course of the last three weeks, I think, does need to be set in context with the failure of leadership being exhibited by the Democratic Unionist Party and other sections of political unionism. They've allowed the extremists to basically uh, set the agenda for them. They're responding to 
uh, the extremist agenda. It's important, I think, for your uh, listeners to uh, bear in mind that at the beginning of the year, a lucid poll uh, suggests that, that in the next Assembly election, which is scheduled for uh, May 2022, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party could in fact lose support to the uh, the extremist edges of political unionism. And I think that's a major dynamic okay. in relation to the approach that the DUP have taken to politics in the north of Ireland over the course of the last period of months. Okay, you mentioned um, Brexit. Uh, Is there a way to sort out the protocol, the uh, Northern Ireland protocol, with the EU? How could it work? Yes, I do believe that with goodwill and appropriate political leadership, these are issues that can be addressed by both the British government and the European Commission. And I would point you towards the remarks by the uh, European Commission Vice President Maros uh, Shevchukovic, uh, who spoke in the last 24 hours where he acknowledged the need to minimise uh, disruption being caused by the, the protocol. But he also made the point that this is a two-way street. He accepts, uh, and I believe, that checks can be made smoother. And a lot of the controls that currently are required as a result of the protocol having been negotiated. And let's remember, the protocol is an integral part of the withdrawal agreement, which was negotiated by the English government, by the British government, with eyes wide open. So they they negotiated these terms. And uh, the European Commission are indicating that several of these controls, which currently apply, could in fact be removed if solutions can be found with goodwill by the British government and the European Commission in relation to how we get uh, agreement on uh, standards concerning food protection, cytosanitary controls and other measures. And that's all about food safety, public health and, and, and animal welfare. Yeah, Declan, let me ask you about something which I think is absolutely crucial to any part of this going forward, which is trust. Clearly there was no trust effectively between the communities visible uh, in Belfast uh, in the last few weeks, nor trust, I think, between yourselves and the DUP. And that isn't helped when it seems that the authorities, the police in this instance, treated a group of Sinn Féiners who'd gone to a funeral in breaching lockdown regulation. No action was taken against them. Uh, this makes a lot of people think it's one law for one, one law for others. Suggest so double standards. That doesn't help. I don't accept that premise at all. Let's remember that Uh, The PPS received a file from the PSNA and then the PPS uh, arrived at a determination. Now, it's also important uh, to bear in mind, and and I say this effectively from a sub-judice perspective, that there is now uh, a review being carried out by HMIC in relation to the, uh, the PSNA approach to that particular matter. And there is a review being undertaken by our PPS in relation to that decision. So there are a number of issues extant. But uh, policing is very challenging in the north of Ireland. It's a a characteristic of our conflict resolution process. But I I don't accept that it is acceptable politics on behalf of senior DUP politicians and ministers in government to call for the resignation of senior police officers when they receive yeah. decisions that they don't like. That, right. That's more of the dead-end politics which I spoke about. And we do need to have trust, but trust is a two-way street. It needs to be built. But most important of all, and I think this goes yeah. to the very heart of our discussion this morning, we need to see implementation of the Good Friday Agreement 
It was signed off on 23 years ago, and 23 years on, we still have to see fundamental elements of the Good Friday Agreement properly implemented by the British government. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we begin, Caroline, with uh, the virus. Yeah, indeed. Boris Johnson says that Britain must be ready for another wave of the coronavirus later this year. The Prime Minister is still insisting, of course, that the plans to end social restrictions by, what, the 21st of June are on track. But he's warning that COVID is going to stay around for some time to come. The majority of scientific opinion in this country is still firmly of the view that there will be another wave of COVID at some stage this year. And so we must, as far as possible, learn to live with this disease as we live with other diseases. So COVID cases in the UK have been falling pretty dramatically since January, but there are still a lot of concerns, Roger, about new variants that that could knock the UK off course. Well, something else that could knock the UK off course is if there's a bout of inflation. doesn't seem to be much of one at the moment. Uh, Inflation did accelerate during the last month of lockdown, however. Consumer prices rose 0.7% from a year ago in March after a 0.4% gain the month before. Now, this adds to pressure on British people's pockets, inevitably. Research suggests UK household finances are far worse than households in either France or Germany. But businesses remain positive, with the number of UK sectors reporting output growth rising to a six-month high in March. Meanwhile, when it comes to uh, politics, Defence Minister Johnny Mercer has resigned. He says he was forced to leave his job over the treatment of veterans who served in Northern Ireland. Number 10 confirmed his exit actually on Tuesday ahead of the Overseas Operations Bill returning to the Commons on Wednesday. Now, this new law protects veterans from prosecutions for their actions after a certain time period. But Mercer is objecting to the fact that soldiers who served in Northern Ireland will be excluded from the bill, and Mercer called that a red line for him staying in government. Yeah, that bill itself, hugely controversial, of course, for what it does in terms of potential for the UK to be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court in the future. Meanwhile, the government has abandoned plans to hold White House-style televised briefings, despite spending £2.6 million on a new studio. Boris Johnson's press secretary, Allegra Stratton, is now going to become spokeswoman for the COP26 Climate Change Summit, which of course takes place later this year. Uh, For her part, she says she's delighted to be starting the role. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a little roundup of some of the news in the world of politics. But let's also talk about uh, an announcement that we're expecting from the Prime Minister on cutting carbon emiss- emissions even more steeply. A new target of reducing emissions by 78% by 2035 compared to 1990 levels. Now, the Prime Minister is making this commitment ahead of the US President's Virtual Climate Summit, which starts tomorrow on Earth Day, and also ahead 
ahead of hosting the COP26 International Climate Change Summit here in the UK in November. Joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael to discuss. I mean, we've had a number of big announcements on toughening up the climate uh, emissions rules in the UK, you know, stopping selling uh, polluting vehicles uh, sooner than we had thought. Do you think that this new set of goals that we're going to get from the Prime Minister is actually achievable? Well, I think you know, they're clearly setting out a set of goals that are intended to, uh, well, for, for one thing, to be uh, world-beating, to use that phrase that Boris Johnson really likes. To, so these are targets that, you know, um, are probably the most ambitious we've seen anywhere. And if you think about, you know, just a couple of years ago, or I think maybe even last year, we had um, environmental groups saying that, you know, even getting to a 72% reduction, uh, you know, would be a would be a big achievement. So the the first thing is that the the setting of the goal, which is you know meant to be enshrined in law, which is you know quite it makes it sound you know quite uh, a, a major commitment, is intended to signal to the rest of the world that Britain is going to lead on on uh, emissions reduction and on getting to net zero. But then the question is exactly how do you get there and how do you get there. Uh, Within, you know, within these, you know, what does legislation do that policy can't do? So bringing, legisla- bringing political targets into legislation has various consequences. So in one sense, it makes government more strategic. It, it signals internally to other departments that, uh, that, poli- that, that laws and policy have to be in conformity with this legislation. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of it is it could be quite a, an embarrassment if the targets are missed. And as you, you know, imply, there's quite a lot to get there. So there's, you know, on electric vehicles, I, you know, I think we're, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction quite quickly. But on other areas, such as, re, you know, changing heating mm. over to, um, uh, you know, non, uh, you know, non you know, getting rid of gas boilers and, and finding ways to heat homes that um, reduce the carbon footprint, you know, we're a long way from getting there. And that's going to be a big part of reaching these targets. So it's not clear how, despite putting them into legislation, the government plans to actually make that a reality. And bear in mind, the you know, Climate Committee said this is going to cost about $50 billion a year annually. Now, some have disputed that figure, but whatever, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's a very expensive task to get there. And just creating a target, even putting it in law, doesn't sort of guarantee that we uh, achieve it. Well, certainly not. I mean, if I suppose the comparison is to say, OK, we say, you know, it's going to be done by 2035. Pretty clear Boris Johnson won't still be in power then, or at least the assumption is that he won't. Um, but if, if, for example, the commitment in law to spend a certain amount on international aid that was exactly. overturned uh, by, the, by Parliament uh, with some controversy, clearly these things are perhaps not much more than gestures. Yeah, there are a lot of examples of uh, legislating for policy that doesn't go well. I mean, there, there you know, there was fuel poverty. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, other countries have, say, fiscal targets. Um, and, you know, one thing, of course, about the, the British parliamentary system is that um, there's parliamentary sovereignty, so the next parliament can change something. Now, there are ways that you can sort of load these uh, legal um, commitments so that it makes it hard to, that the process of changing it is very onerous. But, uh, you know, there's always ways around it. So I think, you know, we, we shouldn't take these targets as, um, you know, absolutely written in stone Mm. until we see a pathway to achieve them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just by way of example, London has exceeded national air pollution limits since 2015. Uh, the congestion charging zone in the UK, some campaigners say, has actually made pollution in the capital worse. I mean, on many measures, um, the UK is sort of not not actually, we've got a lot of goals, but we haven't got a lot of pathways to, to actually get there. And I suppose when I look at the election that's about to take place in Germany in September, you know, where the Greens are sort of polling very strongly and could well be in contention for the chancellorship, you sort of wonder, the the Green Party in the UK is is, is nowhere. Um, so it's kind of, there's no challenge particularly, I don't think holding the, the, uh, mm. the Tories' feet to the fire, as it were, on this. Yeah, I think against that, I guess I would say that the green objective has now been pretty, you know, fully absorbed yeah. into mainstream parties. Mm-hmm. So whereas, uh, you know, climate action would not have featured among the top, you know, top list of priorities. So now it's on at the doorstep. Politicians are hearing about it all the time. In the integrated review, it was, um, you know, declared as the main goal of this uh, of, of this government and you know obviously the labor party takes it very seriously as well so i think the fact that I mean, the greens are doing i think uh, better but it's it, in a way it's the um kind of co-option of their agenda by yeah. the mainstream parties so it's almost a you know a, 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 their success in a way or at least the success of the agenda that um you know means that that, that a one issue party just really, you know, isn't that viable in UK politics. Well, let's talk about electoral agenda, because I think one thing that's been mm. very interesting in the story that's really dominated the beginning of this week, of course, which has been uh, the moves towards forming a Super League in football, European football, and then it's a pretty catastrophic collapse, really, within the last 24 hours. Uh, politicians have been very form forward in this, in, in condemning it, right across the board here in the UK. Uh, and I suppose, is there a sense, someone shouldn't be too cynical, this is simply an issue where, by standing with the fans, by standing against the billionaires who own the clubs, it's completely win-win for all politicians? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, you know, it was it, it would be very hard in Britain to come out, you know, in favour of Super League when you saw just the groundswell of support um, by fans, by, you know, influencers and big personalities in football um, you know so this was an easy one for the government let's say it's as easy as it gets obviously the Labour Party wasn't going to oppose um, uh, Boris Johnson when he said he would do everything to, to uh, mm. get, you know, get the Super League uh, to rethink its plans and now you know how he was going to legislate for that was unclear but certainly there were a lot of levers the government could pull from you know making quite a lot of phone calls to getting the competition's authority to look at it. And, you know, with election, local elections coming up, it doesn't hurt. And, you know, remember that the news of, of recent days has been, uh, you know, certain conservative party members, including a former prime minister, who've been in the news a lot um, over a lobbying scandal to do with Greensill, uh, Lex Greensill, as we know. So, you know, anything to get that off the front page is anything to be on the side of football fans, you know, of course, yeah. win-win. Uh, okay, uh, but we do have a by-election, for example, in Hartlepool d- coming up. Does this um, actually win votes? And I and I wonder. This is a question about you know the sophistication of voters and perhaps also the allegiance of these politicians. I mean, maybe you could win votes if you really are a football fan, but um, people might n- not like it if you're not, right? Well, I don't think it's 
probably what what voters are going to cast their vote on, right? But it, you know, it probably creates a sense of of you know at least feeling that the government is listening to um, you know to sports fans, he's sort of on their side. I think the vaccination campaign has been you know one of the things that will win votes for Boris Johnson, and you know really just the lack of of real cut through from Labour leader yeah. Keir Starmer. So no, I, I don't see the the you know <laughs> the Super League issue as being a decider on on May six, but it hasn't hurt. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.